we are beginning a, a brand new series of messages called Anti-Anti. There wasn't a typo. Uh, I did that on purpose. We live in a world, and um, we live in a world that seems to be obsessed uh, with a concept called cancel culture. And uh, it's, been, it's been for the last several years, this idea that if a person says or does something that, uh, that people feel like, hey, this is bad behavior or wrong behavior or this, uh, this behavior causes harm to somebody, then we're just, going to, we're just going to cancel you. How many of you have ever heard of that? How many of you have ever been the victim of it? Maybe not the whole internet, but somebody in your family or uh, your kids did that to you. They deleted you on WhatsApp. Any, anybody, <laughs> right? Cancel culture is a modern form of ostracism. It is the scarlet letter of our time. A person or a company are thrust out of the circles of our life because something they have said or done is considered objectionable, offensive, or harmful. And, you know, the thing about cancel culture is, is that cancel culture sort of grew out of this, this mindset of, well, we have to do something to protect people. We've got to do something to make amends uh, when people are hurting other people. And, and I understand there are probably uh, could be some positive things about cancel culture. Of course, we don't want people to harm others. People need to be held accountable uh, for their actions. They need to be held accountable for the things they say and they do, and we don't want them to hurt anyone else. And so sort of cancel culture grew, grew out of that, this way of holding people accountable. But the problem is, is that oftentimes things that start out good can, be abu- can they themselves become abusive or they themselves can uh, become harmful? What can start out as a way to simply stand up for others or stand in the gap of others can in and of itself become a form of holding others down. It can stifle free speech. I mean, I don't know about you, but how many times have you, maybe, maybe this isn't true in your life, but how many times have you, especially in the last couple of years, we're about to say something, maybe we're about to post something, or we're about to respond to something, but all of a sudden you stopped yourself because you said, I can't say that because if I do, this will happen. Anybody besides me? Yeah, there's a few of you. So the extreme end of cancel culture is that in reality, it can stifle free speech. We can become so scared of what will happen to us if we speak up about something that may be controversial or that may be nuanced. And that's probably one of the biggest issues is the world seems incapable of nuanced thought anymore. You either live at one polar end of an issue or the other polar end of an issue. Because if you take any position that's somewhere in the spectrum of, hey, let's consider this or let's think about this, all of a sudden, again, you're ostracized and you become canceled. And so as a result, dialogue has been cut off because we're afraid to conversate, we're afraid to consider an opinion that is outside of whichever group or mob that we belong to. That's another problem with cancel culture is it develops a mob mentality. 
have you ever seen, have you ever seen a mob? Like something happens and then all of a sudden a group of people just gather and, and like, um, and, and like, and people just flock to a situation and all, and, and everyone gets involved and there's this big crowd of people and, and you start like, Hey, what's going on here? And somebody's like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just here. Right. And that's what happens in a mob. In a mob is often people don't understand. They certainly don't consider nuance. They just go with whatever the flow is. And cancel culture has created or empowered a mob mindset where people sometimes, not every time, but sometimes people are unwilling, are afraid, are downright incapable of expressing their thoughts, opinions, concerns, questions about issues because they're so afraid of the mob. What we also see with uh, cancel culture is that it can damage people's reputations, people who are, they really don't deserve it. Uh, Something just happened, somebody responded to a situation or a circumstance, others pounced on it, and before we knew it, a a good person, a person of character, or maybe, maybe a person who simply made a mistake or was wrong or acted in a way in a situation or a circumstances that was out of alignment with who they really were, but in that situation, they got caught, and before... Before anyone could control it, all of the sudden, things just began to spiral out of control. And their reputation was damaged. What we've seen with cancel culture, what was so fascinating to me about cancel culture is that cancel culture really grew with this idea that we were going to protect the marginalized people. We were going to project, protect people who couldn't stand up for themselves because they're, they're suffering, they're dealing with mental illness, they're dealing with loneliness and all of these things. And what has happened is that, that need or that desire or that, that, that thing that said we're going to protect these people have now just made villains out of other people. And you have this one set of people who we need to stand in the gap for their mental health or their well-being. And so now we're threatening the mental health and the well-being of others. What I I believe I've noticed is that I believe the world in and of itself has become more anxious. I believe that the world in and of itself has become more fearful. I believe that the world in general has got to a place where everyone is living on a knife edge all the time because they're so afraid I might get canceled. So when I talk about being anti-anti, what I want to talk about over the next few days is I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, that it should be our posture in the world. Not to, not to position ourselves as the mob would, who are ready and able and willing to declare and tell you everything that they are against. I believe that the message of the gospel and I believe that mature Christians take up a position or a posture of instead of being anti, we are people who are declaring what we are for and what we are about. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certainly things that are wrong. But I believe that it is only from the place, it is only from the place of true health It is only from the place of truly living in the light and life of Jesus that we have the moral and spiritual authority to address those things which are wrong in the world. I believe that if we are people who are just following the mob, if we are people who are just responding out of our emotions and our offenses, that we become like the world and we align ourselves with the spirit of this age. I believe that the spirit of this age is anti I'm not trying to be clever if you understand 
anything about your Bible at all, then you understand that the spirit of this age is the spirit of anti-Christ. It is the spirit of anti-life, anti-hope, anti-truth, anti-reconciliation. That's the golden nugget right there. The spirit of this age is the spirit of anti-reconciliation. It is not interested in making wrong things right. It is interested in stringing out wrong things until they come to their ultimate end, which is death. I'm teaching you something today. It's beyond the surface. The spirit of this age is anti-Christ. The spirit of antichrist does not lead to reconciliation. It only leads to death. And what I find about people who are ingrained in cancel culture is when you try to intellectually or emotionally engage them in conversation to lead toward reconciliation, they will never go down that road because reconciliation is never the aim, only destruction. No matter how much you admit you're wrong, no matter how much you admit things are wrong, no matter how much you try to make things right, that's never the intent of the conversation. Only staying in a place of death, shame, and destruction is the intent of the heart and the conversation of those who have postured and positioned themselves from a place of anti I believe, friend, God has called you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to move beyond the anti-spirit of this age and move to a place where we are people who are speaking life. Proverbs chapter 18, verses 20 through 21 says this, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to take apart that entire proverb. And I want to encourage you during your daily 20 over the next several weeks, I want to encourage you to meditate on Proverbs chapter 18, the whole chapter. When you take a verse of scripture, we don't take a verse of scripture out of context and we don't build a theology on one verse of scripture out of context. What we understand here at North Place is that the Bible is a conversation and that it was written as such. And when we read it, we should read it that way. We shouldn't take one verse and, and put a bumper sticker on our car, but instead we need to understand it. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to slowly unpack all of the implications of Proverbs chapter 18 because there's a lot of little nuggets that are found in Proverbs 18 that I believe that are very useful to our lives but oftentimes taken out of the context of the conversation they can be used to become legalism in the life of believers or they can be used to become mantras that make us no more than just like new age gurus who go around again with bumper stickers and means as if these things will just automatically change our lives so we're going to unpack it we're going to understand it together when the writer says this, when he says that from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied, he is satisfied by the yield of his lips, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He's saying something to us that is, that is incredibly significant to our lives. He's holding us accountable to the confession and declaration of our mouths. Now, I, I grew up, uh, my, my parents became Christians when, uh, when, when I was born, right around the time that I was born. My mother had already been a Christian right around the time I was born. 
uh, my parents became Christians. And so I grew up um, in this Christian world. I grew up in this sort of Pentecostal charismatic version of this Christian world. And so I grew up with a lot of people talking about confessions and declarations. And, and I've heard a lot about it. Uh, I've tried to struggle through it in my own life and really understanding what Scripture had to say about my mouth. I understood from this verse of Scripture that I, I had quoted to me many times. I understood from other messages and, uh, that I've heard and, and verses that I've read that there's something about my mouth and how I use my mouth and, and what comes out of my mouth that has implications for my life. And, and as I've considered that through the years, um, I've struggled with some things. I'm amazed at the weird relationship that the Christian community has with this conversation around confessions and declarations. Now, let me explain that to you. Because as I, as I observe the Christian community, or at least the one that I grew up in, having a conversation around confessions and declarations, I hear a lot of things, but I, I see people typically falling into two camps. Or two extremes, if you will. On the one end of the spectrum, I see people who, who view the world and view what comes out of their mouth um, in, in the light of almost as if they're like a new age guru or something. Where they believe that everything they say with their mouth somehow or another goes on this cosmic scale. And depending on what they say... They're going to get a response in their life based on what they say. What, what has happened is we basically have, um, uh, we have we've, we've repackaged uh, an old idea called karma. Let me say it this way. I have been shocked in my life at how many Christians... I'm talking come to church every Sunday, shamalama ding dong, speaking tongues, up in the altars. I am shocked at how many Christians I have, ha- have heard say, well, that's karma. Well, that's witchcraft. Oh, okay. And that's what I want to say. Well, it's just karma. No, you know, it's just the balance of the universe. And so there are a group of people who just believe, and, and like I said, it's been repackaged in a lot of different ways in a lot modern new age. Just, you know, whatever I put out into the world, it's going to come back to me. We say things like that, and we've, taken, we've even taken Bible verses out of context, and we've repackaged them into books because the, the, the guys up on stage love to fleece you and get all your money, and so they say magic things, and they repackage them in slick words so they can get money from you, and it makes you feel good about yourself. The Bible has a lot to say about that. And we as Christians, we just eat that stuff up because it, we, we love magic and we love to be the person in power. Because here's the thing about the whole karma mindset and the whole new age mindset is really it's about me and it says that I control the universe. That there's a cosmic scale between bad and good. And if I say good things, then I get good things. And if I say bad things, then I get bad things. And the thing that it does is it puts me in the position of being God. How crazy and narcissistic is it to believe that the entire universe stands in balance and that if Randy gets up today and says, oh, it looks sunny outside, 
then the universe is going to give me more sun. But if Randy gets up today and says, oh, it looks cloudy today, the universe is going to give me, hello? But boy, we want to be God so bad that we believe this crazy stuff. So there's that camp, the camp that just has embraced Basically, it's witchcraft. Basically, it's idol worship. It's self-worship. This idea that through various religions throughout humanity, we've practiced over and over and over again. So there's that side. But then there's the other side. And these people, I feel like, are more problematic to me because what, what they believe is so trauma-inducing. Um, there's this group of people who, like, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it, guys. There's a group of people who see God as this narcissistic, angry, abusive, insecure father in heaven who is so, his ego is so fragile and so threatened that if Randy gets up today and says, oh man, it looks like it's gonna be cloudy today, that, that God is up there like, he doesn't trust me. And if he doesn't trust me, well, I'm just going to send him rain. Because if he can't trust me for the sunshine, then he must not love me. And if he doesn't love me, then I'm not going to reward him. And God is so fragile. He's so threatened. His existence is up in heaven, so dependent on whatever mood I wake up in in the morning, whatever errant or inerrant word that comes out of my mouth, that he's up there in heaven balancing all of the activities of the universe in light of every careless and useless word that comes out of my mouth. And what's crazy about it is that his love for me is so shallow that if I, if, I mess, if I say it the wrong way, oh my goodness, I said it the wrong way, he's going to get me now. We're like a child cowering in the corner of a drunken father over in the other side of the room, hoping that I don't do anything to set him off. Friend, I love you, but I believe that there are some of us in this room that that's our view of God. That's our view of what comes out of our mouth that's our view of this subject. And so as a result of it, we're walking on eggshells all the time. We don't, why am I, why do I have so much anxiety? Why do I have so much fear? Why, why can't I have a breakthrough with God? It's because our view of him is so distorted and twisted. And we've embraced this mindset that is so shallow about God and so shallow about ourselves. We've totally ignored the idea from scripture that, that he is a loving long-suffering, compassionate father who cares more about you than he cares about himself. You know, again, what is so crazy to me is some of you got up this morning and what came out of your mouth was, boy, it looks like it's going to be a sunny, shiny day. And some of you got up this morning and were like, well, I heard it was going to rain. I'm just wondering, like, think about your theology for a moment. If I live in Durban North and you live in Umschlange and I got up and I looked outside and I saw clouds and I said, oh, I hope it doesn't rain. And you got up and you live in Umschlange and you got out and you said sunshine. You say, oh, it looks like it's going to be a shiny day. Do you think God is like up in heaven with Prozac in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand stressed out about who does he listen to? Do you think he's up there in heaven like, Michael, did you hear what Randy said? Oh, did you, did, you hear what, did you hear what Aaron said? What do we do? Do we put sun here and clouds here? Do we make it rain? 
Is that really your theology? Sometimes we have to be mature enough to like follow the links of our theology. Because this is what we believe about God. We literally, you know what we believe? We believe that the whole world revolves around us. That's what we really believe. See, regardless of if you are the new age person or you're the hyper-religious person, you know what the end is? The end is, is that you and I have embraced that the entire world revolves around us. And as a result of that, we've created this schizophrenic spirituality that causes us to be incapable. It causes us to be incapable and to not take seriously a conversation about how we manage our declarations and our confessions. Because if you're like me, you become so tired of being pulled to one extreme by one group and another extreme by another group that you just avoid the subject altogether. You become like the people who are like, I'm not going to engage online because if I say anything, somebody's going to come after me. I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm just not going to say anything. We don't have a daily 20. We don't have a devotional life with the Lord because we're afraid to pray the wrong way. I know people who won't participate in the Lord's table. They won't participate in communion because they've been taught so many things about this angry God in heaven who's waiting to smite you if you do it wrong. There are many of us who just can't move forward because we can't take seriously or haven't taken seriously a conversation about our confessions and our declarations. James chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 says this, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, I can point you to and show you times when Scripture absolutely holds you and I accountable to how we handle the confessions and declarations of our mouth. It is significant and it is important. But I believe the Bible is calling us to maturity around this conversation. That we not behave like those who are practicing magic, but we also not behave like those who are caught under the bondage of legalization and religion. As somehow or another, we find the place of maturity where we can understand that yes, yes, I am responsible for what comes out of my mouth, but that responsibility is a call to come into alignment with what God has said about himself, what God has said about me, and what God has said about others. It is not about me being God. It is not about me recreating the universe in my image. If you'll go back to original sin, that's what it was all about. And that's what these gurus want us to do. And that's what these abusive religious leaders want us to do. They want us to recreate the world in our own image or after our own desire. I believe God's word has called us not to a place where we're trying to recreate the world in our image or after our desires. But instead to come into alignment with the word of God about himself, the word of God about us, and the word of God about others. We're going to read this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Pastor Aaron spoke from Hebrews chapter 12 a few weeks ago, and so I thought I would just kind of pick up from there, talking about us running this race. 
And as the writer goes on, verse 12, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. This particular Passage of scripture has been something that I have meditated on many times throughout the course of my life. In fact, one of the pursuits of my life um, has been, God, help me, help me to steward the garden of my life so no roots of bitterness will begin to develop in me. And as we read Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews is talking about how we live our lives, and he's talking about the confession of our mouths, and he's talking about our declaration, he's talking about how we handle ourselves in a world that is complex and difficult and hard, running a race that is complex and difficult and hard. And he makes it very clear to those who are reading this, you cannot allow a root of bitterness to develop in your life. And very quickly this morning, I want to share with you some, qu- some things from Hebrews chapter 12 about our confessions and our declarations, about being mature when it comes to how we handle our mouths. The writer says this, and remember the light, the context is that he's talking about this runner running this race. He says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The reason that it is necessary for me in my life that I am anti-anti is because I understand that I am responsible to not reinforce broken patterns. I am responsible to not reinforce broken patterns and broken places in my life, in the lives of those around me. When the writer writes, he says, listen, when, 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 when there's an injury, when someone is tired or fatigued and they're running the race, they can, and if you've ever seen a runner run who has hurt themselves or strained a muscle or strained a leg, all of a sudden they'll have a limp or they'll, 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 they'll run with a, with a, with a gimp. Do you, do you, have you ever seen that? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever sprained an ankle? Have you ever seen someone with a broken foot? And the writer says, listen, When there's an injury, when there's fatigue, when there's tired, you can't reinforce that. Here in South Africa, we we love, we love when there's an injury, we love to go to the to the physical therapist. Right? Like you get a cold, your doctor sends you, what do you what do we call them? The the physio. I said, that's that's the South African way of saying it. Like I get a cold, my doctor sends me to the physio. I'm like, don't I just need some lemon tea or something? No, go to the physio. And it's because, it's because wisdom says, hey, let's intervene. Let's intervene where your body is responding 
out of this broken place and let's reset the course because you can't reinforce the brokenness. And if you've ever had an injury in your leg, what you know is you start to, you start to limp on this side and you start doing damage on this side. It's often that people who have to have knee surgery on one side years later have to end up having knee surgery on the other side. It's often that when a person has a hip injury on one side, they have to, they have, to have surgery on the other side. Why? Because it's natural for your body to try to compensate for the brokenness. And as your body compensates for the brokenness in one place, it creates brokenness in another place. You see, when I am immature, when I am not intentional about my confession and my declaration, when I just go along with the mob, when I say, if they're anti, I'm going to be anti also. When I see someone being abused and I run in and I want to abuse the abuser, I just reinforce the abuse. When I rush in, when I see pain and hurt in the world and I'm immature and I'm careless and I respond out of my emotions and I respond to the brokenness, if I'm not careful, what I do is I create more brokenness. In this cancel culture world that we live in, I believe we are facilitating greater brokenness. We are facilitating greater loneliness. We are, we are facilitating greater abuse because we are, con, we are careless with our confession and our declaration. And I believe that Hebrews 12 and other places in Scripture that we're going to learn over the next several weeks is calling you and I to a place of maturity in our confession and declaration and our responses to the world around us, that we are not aligning ourselves with the spirit of Antichrist, that we are not aligning ourselves with those who are careless in our response, but instead we align ourselves with what is God saying about himself what is God saying about me and what is God saying about others that every declaration of my mouth is not built around my self-interest or even my sense of justice and how I want to protect others but instead what is God saying and what does he want me to do about it that is our mantra here at North Place. It is our discipleship pathway. It is our mindset. We are interested in what is God saying and what does he want me to do about it? Not what I want to do about it. Not what I think I should do about it. But what does he want to do about it? I'm responsible not to reinforce broken patterns, the writer of Hebrews says. He says, listen, you've got you to make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be point out of je uh, uh, joint, but instead rather healed. You see, the confession and declaration of our Father in heaven is always going to bring us to reconciliation. If your confession and your declaration is not leading you towards reconciliation, if it is not leading others towards reconciliation, if it is not leading the world toward healing, then I can tell you it is not alignment. It is not in alignment with the will of God. It is not in alignment with the will of God. I don't care how much you think you're being holy or just or right or good. If it is not leading towards reconciliation and healing and health, it is reinforcing the brokenness of the enemy. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness for, which out, for without which no one will see the Lord. You see, on my journey to healthy boundaries and justice, my filter must include grace. I'm so grateful that you are on a journey to healthy boundaries. I'm so thankful that you are passionate about justice. Young warrior, listen to me. I'm so grateful that you are passionate about justice. 
Everything in scripture tells me that my God is a just God. I'm grateful that you are passionate about justice. But God's brand of justice and retribution is through the filter of grace. In fact, you would not be sitting here today if it were not for grace. Your story would not be your story. And you may say, I'm not a Christian. Don't talk to me like, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. You're in this building. You're in this room. Somebody loves you today, and that's why you're here. It's only because of grace. You can reject Jesus. You can reject me. You can do whatever you want, but I guarantee you, it's only an act of grace that causes you to be in this building. It's only because God looked down and loved you when you were unlovable. He looked at me and he loved me when I didn't deserve it. He gave me a gift that I can never earn. And on my journey, in my speech, the habits of my mouth, my confessions and declarations, on my journey towards creating healthy boundaries where I'm not hurt and others are not hurt, where, where justice reigns in this world, I must align it to the filter of grace. Grace does not ignore problems. Grace does not allow sin to go unaddressed. Grace does not say, oh, we love everybody just the way they are and there are no consequences for your behavior. That's not grace. That's nonsense. It's just because it's not true. There are consequences. There's such a thing as holiness and righteousness, and without it, no one will see God. But grace says you can't be holy and you can't be righteous on your own. Through Jesus Christ, you are made the righteousness of God. You don't understand. I was born this way. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry you were born that way, but there's another way. It's called through Jesus Christ. I'm just being who I am. No, who you are is going to lead you to destruction. There's another way. That way is called through Jesus Christ. And by his grace, he creates a new way in you. My way is being angry. My way is being a murderer. My way is being a liar. My way is taking advantage of other people. My way is subjugating other people. My way is broken. My way is harmful. My way is not good. It has nothing to do with my sexuality. It has nothing to do with my gender. It has nothing to do with my race. It has nothing to do with my class. It has to do with the fact that I am broken. And my brokenness may look different than your brokenness, but all of our brokenness leads us to death. Righteousness, on the other hand, comes through Jesus Christ. It is a new way, and it is the only way that leads to life. And grace, grace says, let me provide you another way. Instead of leaving you in your condemnation, let me show you another way. I must become mature in my declaration and confession because here's the thing, exaggerated and self-destructive behavior are the harvest of an unattended garden. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. I've always been intrigued by this passage, as I mentioned earlier, because um, having grown up 
in church, grew up going to Sunday school and being taught Bible stories. And I remember being taught the story of Jacob and Esau and uh, the bowl of, of beans or soup or whatever it was that Esau sold his birthright for. I, I remember I've, we've talked about that story here on Sunday mornings at North Place. And um, so I've, I've known that story. And in the context of knowing that story and understanding that Esau sold his birthright, that he, that he on a whim, responded to a circumstance and sold his inheritance. And, and all of that, like, like I get that. But then there's that part about sexual immorality and stuff in that passage that I'm like, I, I never could like, I could never get it. it and it certainly wasn't in my uh, PG-13 Bible that I was reading as a kid. So like and when in Sunday school, when they told me the story and they referred to this passage, they didn't read that part. And so I've, like as I grew up and, and as I really wanted to start learning the Bible, what it actually talked about, I, I read that and I'm like, what, what, is he, what is he talking about? And the writer seems to be describing, and we can't know for sure all of the details of Esau's life, but what the, what the writer keeps, is trying to help us to understand is that Esau became careless in that moment. He was so hungry, he had come in from the field, he wanted something to eat, and he sold his birthright. And it was indicative of a life of impulsiveness. Like I've never, like I've counseled a lot of, I've counseled a lot of people. I was gonna say dudes, but honestly, it's not just men, it's women also. I've counseled a lot of people who've really messed up in their life. I've counseled a lot of people who've, um, unfortunately, had affairs, um, done a lot of things. And I've never, I've never sat down with somebody who said to me, yeah, you know what, Pastor Andy, um, you know, I thought about this, and I planned it out, and um, I, I just, you know, I just decided that this is what I was going to do, that I was going to ruin my life. Uh, I've decided that I, I decided I was going to ruin my uh, you know, the life of my spouse and my kids. I decided that I was going to get this person pregnant that I wasn't married to, or I decided I was going to have this. I just decided, and I planned it out. No, no, every conversation is like, man, pastor, I don't know how this happened. I, I don't know how I found myself in this situation. I don't know what, I don't know, and it's not just sexual stuff. It's, you could go down the line, man, pastor, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to get high, but I did, and I was, at, I was at this party, I was at this place, and I did, and then this happened, and this car wreck happened, and now I'm going to jail. I, I got drunk. I didn't, you know, I was just at the party, I was just hanging with my friends, I got drunk, and I got raped, Pastor. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I've, it's always been this impulsive this, this moment, this carelessness, this, the process wasn't a process of, I'm going to make this huge mistake that ruins my life, but a process of, well, let me diminish the significance of my identity as a child of God so much over time, and let there be a pattern in my life that's so much over time that Esau, like Esau, I become bitter and angry towards mommy and daddy not doing what they should do or the church not doing what they should do. 
I saw this, I saw this this week, and I just have to share it with you. Uh, somebody posted this. I thought it was super funny. Uh, it really related to me as a pastor. People will go back to McDonald's over and over and over again, even though they get your order wrong every single time. But like, let somebody walk into church on Sunday and us not shake their hand. I'm never going back to that church again. I just thought it was super funny, and, and uh, yeah, I felt like it related. I don't know if it does so much now. I just had to get it off my chest. Like this idea, like all of a sudden, I'm offended by the church. The church did this to me. I'm a victim, and this builds up over time. And then all of a sudden you start being careless and your mouth just starts running. Your behavior starts responding to circumstances and situations. And before you know it, you're impulsively saying or doing something that messes up your life. But more significantly, takes you out of alignment with your identity as child of God. And when I get out of that place of alignment with identity as child of God, what I have to understand is that I have not bent the universe to my will by saying that it was going to rain today. I haven't bent the universe to my will by being a little bit melancholy and depressed about what was going on and negative about what everything was. No, no, no. I haven't bent the universe to my will. I've decided what universe I'm going to align myself with. I've decided, I've confessed, I have declared in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit what is most true about me. And I've decided and declared and bent my will to come into alignment with the universe that is out of alignment with the goodness of Father, so much so that that becomes my reality instead of the goodness of the Father. You're not bending the will, the universe with your words. You're determining which universe you are aligning yourself with. You're determining which kingdom you're a citizen of. You're determining which reality is the one that you're going to choose today. You're not balancing the scale. You're deciding which side of the spectrum you want to live on. Do you want to live on the side of the spectrum that says you are a child of God and if it rains or if it doesn't rain, if the sun is shining or if it's cloudy, it doesn't change anything because God is God. Or do you want to live in the universe that says I make things happen. I'm God. I can control my own destiny. And my destiny reinforces every bad thing, every negative thing, every hurtful thing, every spiteful thing that has ever been said about me. And what happens is I begin to exaggerate and a self-destructive behavior just starts to spiral in my life and my confessions and my declarations become more and more exaggerated and more and more self-destructive. We, we start becoming prophets. We start speaking into existence a reality that is out of alignment. And don't you understand that you have an enemy of your soul? Of course he wants to reinforce the narrative that says that God doesn't love you. Of course he wants to reinforce the narrative that says that you are rejected in this world, that you are alone, that you have no hope and you have no future. Of course the enemy of your soul hates you so much that he's going to do everything he can to reinforce in your emotions and your experiences things that take you away from God and away from community. So my confessions, my declarations, they really are a rudder. They really are a rudder to my life. They're the rudder 
to how I'm steering the ship of my life? Am I steering the ship of my life to come into alignment with the kingdom of God? Or am I steering the ship of my life to come into alignment with the kingdom of the enemy who only seeks to destroy me? Proverbs chapter 18 verse 3 says, When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The enemy of your soul wants to do everything he can to dishonor you. Because if he can dishonor you, if he can get you to participate in dishonor, then you know what? In his sick, twisted mind, every time you're hateful, every time you're rude, every time you're selfish, every time you're self-destructive or destructive towards other people, every time you declare about yourself or somebody else something that is out of alignment with God, you know what he does? He feels in his sick, twisted mind like he's robbing God of his glory. And that's been his intent from the beginning. He's jealous of God's glory. And because you were created in God's image, because you are an image bearer, if he can get your tongue, if he can get the rudder of your life, if he can get the instrument of your confession and your declaration, and if he can get the instrument of your direction to be steered in his direction, then he feels like he's getting a little bit of God's glory. This isn't about you controlling the universe and it's not about you controlling God. It's about you and I choosing. It's about you and I choosing. Am I aligning with God's goodness or am I aligning with the brokenness, the hatefulness, the destructiveness of my enemy?